Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answers. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. To grow this community of information and action, I hope you give us a five-star review. Come visit me at hightruths.com to learn more about the show and download a free prescription for naloxone. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org. That's I-A-S-I-C-1.org. Use their friendly medical library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their free speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a national conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. National, as in the National Institute of Health, the NIH. But before I start, you may be wondering about my different location. I'm not in the usual High Truth studio, but in a hotel in Kingsville, Texas. Last night, I attended a winging ceremony where young men and women celebrated completing the training to become fighter pilots, F-18, F-35, and growlers. It was pretty incredible, and I was very honored to be invited. Back to NIH. The National Institute of Health includes a Center for Addiction Research, known as NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Drug abuse, you may be raising an eyebrow. That word abuse is not PC these days and is considered stigmatizing language. And Congress is working on changing the A in abuse to A for addiction, and the agency will still be called NIDA. NIDA is the world leader in research on addiction from basic neuroscience, epidemiology, risk and protective factors, prevention, treatment, and implementation. And NIDA provides the gold standard to the world on issues of substance use disorders. On High Truths, we're very fortunate to hear and learn from the gold standard every year. This is season four of High Truths and the fourth episode featuring the director of NIDA, Dr. Nora Wolkoff, one of my rock star heroes. Dr. Nora Wolkoff is the longest residing director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, NIDA, at the National Institute of Health ever since 2003. She is the world's expert on the science of addiction and named top 100 people who shape our world and our addiction science gold standard. To learn more about Dr. Nora Wolkoff and NIDA, please visit the High Truth show notes. Dr. Nora Wolkoff, welcome to High Truths. Hello, thanks for having me um, four years in a row. Four years in a row, it's such an honor and always inspiring. And it's not just the conversations that we have, but what I learned from you, I take it for the entire year. So uh, it goes a long way. So I really thank you. And uh, as you could see, I'm not in my studio. I'm in a hotel room in Kingsville where I got to see a ceremony where young pilots got their wings and are assigned which jets that they'll be to. So you could relate to this. I think of it as very high dopamine level event. <laughs> Sounds very, very exciting. And I hope you enjoy it. And thanks for keeping the, the appointment, even though you are out in Texas. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. So last year, I asked you about your career and you kind of shared with us about your career and how you, that led you to NIDA and what, um, what work you do. This year, I kind of thought I would ask you to reflect on the, the history of drug use and attitudes and treatments over the year. Over the no, over the over your entire career, because you you can't give us a history of Persephone. Is it the same thing? You know, drugs are drugs no matter what, or have things changed or have attitudes changed um, over the years? Absolutely, life changes, and actually, what it is, uh, we're seeing so many changes in our society, and that's influencing obviously the pattern of drug use. And and in particular, if we focus on the past five years, which is the before and during the and post-COVID, that that uh, those changes have accelerated. And they have accelerated obviously both in positive and negative. Uh, in the negative side, I would say um, the impact of the stress, the loss of loved ones, 
um, the gap between those that have uh, supports and those that do not, the most vulnerable has, has, has enlarged enormously, leaving many people to battle circumstances that are much harder than they were before the pre-COVID, as well as exposing uh, new generations to challenges that they didn't have before. And we're seeing it uh, certainly with uh, young people increasing suicides and, and deaths from overdoses. I think understanding those dynamics are crucial and that we need to tackle them. And, th and that, that can take me back, obviously, to your question of what have we seen in other aspects of, of research of drug use and patterns and how do we take it into that research operations. But before I jump into it, I do. I started by saying the challenges, but also there has been acceleration in, in aspects that are, are very, very positive. And I would say, for example, for us in the world of substance use uh, disorders, one of the components that has been very helpful is the expansion of telehealth opportunities. And that has enabled us, for example, to very much reach people that in the past we couldn't, that were in rural areas. The flexibilities on the way that we provide for treatments have also been very helpful. And we know that they have been life, they were life savings during the COVID pandemic because it would it allow for, for patients to be prescribed buprenorphine, but also for patients that were on methadone clinics to have access to their medications without having to go daily. And during that whole uh, four years of the COVID pandemic, let's say three, where, where there were a lot of the, the changes happening. And, and, and the closing of many of the services. We also learn a lot of things. And I think that, for example, to me, an important lesson learned from it is that the very uh, restrictive practices that we have for treatment of people with opioid use disorder are not justified on the basis of uh, recognizing that when we um, made those, uh, th those practices, much lower threshold, we were able to reach many more people. People were staying in treatment longer, and that was a means for us to be able to provide them uh, a safe way uh, as they are taking drugs or they are trying to go into treatment. So uh, those uh, changes in practices have been very valuable. The advancement in technologies that have made actually, again, um, the process that we're now doing, you and I, where we can have an almost face-to-face -face conversation, but you are in Texas, whereas I am in Maryland, and, and it's seamless to be able to get these hybrid environments where you have people in one place and at the same time communicating all over the world uh, has brought also some of these technologies and, and being innovative towards people that are battling out there with re restricted resources, access to... Um, bandwidth uh, through, for example, libraries or mobile devices has bring these technologies into places that were not available before. So I think that there are those very negative consequences of the COVID pandemic, but we also have to realize that it also has brought and accelerated uh, areas uh, that are beneficial in treatment and certainly in technologies. But that's sort of starting with the, the, the past five years. And I think you wanted to hear from me more than five years, unless that's fine. It's sort of, I've been thinking about it, uh, uh, Renette, because uh, we are going to be celebrating next year our 50th year anniversary of NIDA. Wow. And I always like celebrations and anniversaries are a very good moment to actually look back and say, what have we done? What has happened during that 50-year period of NIDA's uh, birth? Uh, and also, what are the challenges? And based on the knowledge that we have gained over the past five years, how do we look into the future of where we should be going? And, and this is also where it gets entangled with, with the realities that we are now facing that I was commenting at the beginning of our discussion. So in looking at it uh, in the past five years, uh, there have been uh, incredible changes in terms of the landscape of drugs that people are getting exposed to. Uh, and I think that is most notable that we are seeing more and more and more uh, emergence of synthetic drugs that are very, very uh, dangerous because they are much more potent. And at the same time, they are harder to control because they are based on synthesis as opposed to cultivation. 
and that increases the profits for the drug dealers, create a much stronger black market to sell them, much greater incentives. And, and those are ones that we have to tackle because it's making drugs accessible in a much more widespread way, in ways that are very diverse. And we know that that diversity is going increases the likelihood of people getting exposed to drugs. And now that they are so very harmful. So, so there are obviously changes in the landscape of the type of drugs available. Another one is changes in policies. And I think that this is very, very evident when we discuss the issue of cannabis. I mean, cannabis is for all practical purposes legalized by most states in the United States. Now, what are the consequences of that legalization? Well, it depends on the policies that are implemented by the states, which are very diverse. But we already know that those changes in policies have significantly increased the number of people that are now uh, consuming marijuana. But even more importantly than increasing the number of people is increasing the number of people that are consuming it in harmful ways. And as a result of that, uh, that poses challenges um, because we need to see forward and we don't completely necessarily understand what those trajectories are going to be of people that are consuming very high doses of THC at dif different stages in the lifespan. Because for example, we're seeing absolutely that even though consistently the demographic that has the lowest rates of, of substance use in our country and in the world are those people that are 65 years of age or older. But we're seeing now that even though they have the lowest numbers, it is the fastest growing uh, demographic in terms of consumption of cannabis in our country. And, and this, again, reflects another aspect of these policies, which is the legalization of medical marijuana. And so the notion of and we're going to see that move forward into the future with some potentially positive effects, but also some negative ones. And I think we need to keep our eyes on the ball. Uh, negative ones is that uh, medical marijuana, for example, let's take that example, may seem uh, like a panacea for someone that actually does not have counter arguments about what the reality of the benefits of marijuana are, because there's not sufficient scientific evidence for most of them, but also where they may not have alternatives. They don't have an insurance. They cannot get access to treatment or they don't trust the, 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 the healthcare system where cannabis offers them an alternative. Uh, the other one I think that I actually can uh, basically very much, very relevant for cannabis, but, but I'm going to illustrate it with psychedelics. Psychedelics have uh, absolutely very interesting pharmacological properties that we need to investigate to understand how we can maximize those properties for therapeutics. And, and certainly the approval of ketamine is ketamine for uh, management of depression is an example of taking a drug that is addictive and bringing it to a therapeutic that could be beneficial and transformative. And so there is research and interest on how do we use other psychedelic drugs like PCP or ecstasy for treatment of um, addiction, for example, or for treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and, and there is merit in those inquiries, but, but the science is not there. And yet, we can see that already many treatment programs are actually providing uh, those uh, services without evidence of what may be the best practices. So that we have to be very careful because we can do a lot of harm if we are not. And that is going to happen more and more and more. So I say as, as we look into the future of how these changes are, are taking, understanding the past and looking into the future, and changes in drug patterns. I think these are two of the most notable. The third one is I think that, that we have to, uh, basically we've known all along, all along how important the social determinants of health are. This is not new discoveries. And it's not new discoveries, but the effect, because the effect sizes are so gigantic. And, and so adverse childhood experiences increases your risk of um, a substance use disorder uh, tenfold. Um, if, if you have cumulative adverse childhood experiences. 
And, and now with the research that has evolved, I would say probably perhaps in most, most notably in the past five years, we now have the tools to investigate why those adverse exposures during, during infancy, during childhood, adolescence, affect the brain and how that in turn modifies its functions in ways that it makes people vulnerable for addictive behaviors. So that in the future where we have actually databases, modeling, we may be able to actually, based on that knowledge, tailor interventions to, to provide buffering. And I would say importantly, because sometimes we get into the nitty gritty because we love science and I love science. I am, I, I, I say, yes, I am. I, I, I can be um, a sort of pointed a finger at that I am one of them. But um, understanding that sometimes there are things that are actually quite evident. And so, yes, you can understand mechanisms. But in the meantime, we already know that there are um, social determinants of health factors that increase risk. So why don't we don't need to understand it to the depth in order to intervene? And that's absolutely correct. But documenting in that, in, in, in that trajectory what may be obviously the benefit for that individual as they grow up, but also society and public health too in economic terms, because we want to push policies that sustain practices, which we don't have. And, um, and so that's the fourth point that I want to bring up as we look backward, for example, in the 50 years, yes, development of therapeutics, behavior, uh, medications, but also on evidence-based prevention interventions that have shown to be beneficial. And that's great, except that the problem is that they are not being implemented. And, and we see that the, the implementations of evidence-based prevention practices is very restricted across, across our country, even though we have a major problem of, of substance use disorders and drug experimentations among teenagers. But it's the same thing, actually, even with therapeutics. We know that medications for opioid use disorder uh, work, they prevent overdoses, and yet this is estimated that less than 10, 20% of people that need them get them. So there is this gigantic gap as you look at advances uh, that have been brought by science and practices today that we need to look into the future to figure out bridges. So how do we close them? So I would say that is um, sort of not very short summary, but gives you a perspective of where my brain goes when I look backward into what has happened over the past 50 years. And I love following your brain because you always say that, where my brain is going. And the first time I heard you talking about that, it was before we had the fentanyl issue. You said that we, you know, we can't afford that. So I want to ask you a little bit where your brain is going, looking at the mortality data. So we've seen uh, I think I, I met you during the good old days of the prescription opioid epidemic, where we thought that that was the end of the world. That was 50% less of what we're dealing with in terms of death now. And it, fentanyl just is so potent and deadly. The curve, the mortality data just went logarithmically for a few years. And now the past year or two has flattened. And some people are celebrating that flattening of the curve I don't, I'm not. I think that it's a ceiling, that it's like a maximum amount of people who are susceptible to, to deaths um, from, from fentanyl um, and, and to, to using drugs. So I, I, I don't find that ceiling acceptable or, or something to celebrate. We need to go way down from where we are. But how do you interpret that, that ceiling or flattening of the curve? So very interesting uh, to call it like a ceiling because the reality is not, if you look at the data in greater depth, you realize that it's really not a ceiling and we need to actually look at it not as a ceiling, but as, as a divergence on the outcomes across group of people. So whereas, for example, among white Americans, the overdose deaths actually are starting to go down slowly, nothing dramatic, very unacceptably high. We're seeing significant rise in mortality among American Indians and Alaska Natives, and about, uh, also in Black Americans. They are not going down. They are continuing to go up. So if we don't question it from that perspective, we can say, oh, we're doing great, right? 
even though that we want to bring those numbers much lower, even if if we really were uh, sealing it, we need to bring it down uh, lower. But the fact are is we are seeing very significant rises in mortalities in certain groups of demographics that we need to tackle, because that's exactly where you're starting to see again the the, the health disparities becoming even greater and. And they are already pretty large, so 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 we need to tackle that. And 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 that's the only point that I do want to say, vis-a-vis -vis in general terms. In more specific terms, are there um, just sort of in looking at it in terms of averages? You get to the point that I said, okay, uh, can we grow any more in the mortality? And and one of the the elements I'm, I'm highlighting in terms of of uh, underrepresented groups having uh, going up. But also we are seeing shifts in the actually engaging demographics that in the past were not um, vulnerable to overdose deaths. And I, I like to emphasize uh, teenagers because teenagers don't seek out fentanyl and they don't seek out heroin. They seek out prescription drugs like benzodiazepines or Vicodins or actually Adderals. And, but to the extent that now some of these um, prescription drugs are basically being illicitly manufactured as a way to bring fentanyl into an our, our country, then we're seeing that those demographics that in the past were not touched are actually starting to become vulnerable. And, and we saw more than a double in the rate of overdose deaths among teenagers that is likely to be driven in large part to this, uh, the use of prescription, uh, prescription illicitly manufactured prescription uh, drugs that they get so, from a friend. On, on Nora, I was wondering if you have data on that, or I, I know one of your research groups, I was thinking this is information we really need to know. So as an emergency physician, I see people who have overdosed, we give them naloxone, we get them back, and then I have a conversation, what did you mean to take? And because I'm looking to give buprenorphine, right, or, or to give treatment. And a lot of people, they don't meet the criteria because their drug of choice is methamphetamine or cocaine, or they took that Adderall or the Xanax or something. So, and, and I'm noticing that, that uh, a lot of people, and I don't know the percentage, who have overdosed um, on fentanyl did not mean to do that. And the medical examiner cannot get you that data. I'm wondering if we could you know, solicit the emergency departments actually to, to get that data of which of these people who've overdosed on fentanyl meant to take fentanyl as a drug of choice and which ones didn't. Okay, Ronetta, Nina would be very interested on hearing a proposal <laughs> from you exactly on that topic because we do not have it systematically okay. recorded. And I think it is, and you have brought to my attention your work that you have done to be proactive in actually ensuring that patients that get up in the emergency department get tested for fentanyl. That's yeah. not widespread. You've been able to successfully apply it in California. California and Maryland. California, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and now there's federal legislation. Fantastic. But like, now systematically um, put in a screening of whether you were intending or not. I think it will be very valuable to get us a perspective but that's an example exactly of that diversification of people that became vulnerable to overdoses as, as drugs are now being laced with fentanyl. Yeah, I think that's an easy answer to obtain. And I, I just think that we need to get it done. I think uh, uh, like we have the bridge program that, that if we just screen everybody, it's not hard. Uh, after an overdose, say, what was your drug of choice? What did you mean to take? You know, it does two things. One, it, give, it tells us, what what people are susceptible for and two you know you need to have that conversation to ask about for treatment absolutely um, yeah. yeah the the other part and I, I got to see you in vienna i guess you go each year to to speak on drugs at the commission of narcotic drugs um but it made me think about the the american experience and uh, it, it seems that the the mortality because of fentanyl is so high in in North America, um, and I've heard other nations. I, I disagree with them, but I've heard other nations saying, "Well, it's your American culture that makes people die and want fentanyl." Which I disagree. I think it's the supply. Um, 
Um, but I'm wondering if you have perspectives of, of why this is hitting um, our, our American citizens seemingly more than other countries. Yeah, and it's not one reason. I think that there are multiple reasons, and certainly because the question can be brought about absolutely fentanyl, the access to fentanyl is a, a main driver of the very high overdose mortality. But you, we must ask ourselves the question, why is it that, that people are taking drugs uh, at higher rates in, in our country than in others? And that is a very valid question. And then and there are multiple answers. And I sort of can also see, on the one hand, uh, why are dealers, um, those the, the, the big lords, drug lords, are targeting the United States? And I think that one of, of the reasons why is that overall the per capita income uh, is higher in the United States than other countries. So if, say, for example, you are a dealer in Colombia and you say, OK, we have all of this production of cocaine, um, do we bring it to Mexico or do we bring it to the United States? where the Mexicans are much less likely to have the resources to pay the, pay the same level of prices as Americans. So there is an economic business model that is making the United States, as well as some parts of Canada, attractive. You can counter it to me and say, well, what about Europe? And that is correct. I mean, some of the countries in Europe could become targets. So there is that business element, but then there's also the differences in the social characteristics of, of our country. And I think that what we've made, and I said, this is not something that we needed to learn very much because it's been so obvious that social determinants of health play such an important role in drug use and in addiction everywhere in the United States. So, And we saw that exacerbated during the COVID pandemic. And one of our, we saw the rise in 50% on mortality and uh, the people that were most affected of all of them were the most, most socially disenfranchised. Let's think about the homeless people. And, do, and they and think that we have 650,000 Americans who are homeless Crazy. on any given day. I mean, it just, just tells you. I mean, and if you are in those circumstances and you don't have social mobilities or opportunities, you are going to escape. And drugs becomes a, a way of escaping. And I had a, I had a very... A sort of shocking side the other day because I was uh, going to be speaking at an event in 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 the capital in Capitol Hill and I came from Union Station and I was walking and there was these elderly women sitting there in the park surrounded with all of her bags these black bags all of her possessions and and I I mean I, I, it, she looked so disengaged and so sad and she was smoking a cigarette. I mean, and that's that's something typical that I see. I mean, the homeless people smoking cigarettes. And there comes this rat coming out of her possessions, carrying a piece of food in his or her mouth. I don't know what the rat sex was, but running out. And the woman didn't even react. And to me, that sense of isolation and alienation and neglect tells the whole story. I mean, I think that there is an element that that we have created structurally that we need to tackle because these are the people that are most vulnerable. Yeah. And when we see overdoses, I'd like to basically get a sense, those are numbers, like I was saying, yes, we American Indians, Alaska Natives, um, Black Americans, and they are also among the, the ones that are socially less likely to have the supports. So I do think that we have to, to tackle that issue. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you bring up a point, and I don't know if we have the data on that. We do locally, like in San Diego, but the homeless are high risk of death um, for from drugs. They also have, you know, the trifecta of homelessness, mental health, and, and substance use disorder. Um, yeah, and, and that's a very, very vulnerable population. And, and, you, and it makes us look like a third world country. <laughs> Yeah. You're saying, on one hand, drugs come here because we're a rich country. On the other hand, we have this part of society that, that looks third world and we're not taken care of. Yeah, they're forgotten. And, you know, the issue, too, because I come from a, from Mexico where there's a lot of poverty and I've been in the jungles and places. And I, so I've seen the discrepancies and the differences 
But I think that what is distinct in my brain is in the United States, we have the sense that if you want, you can make it, that you have the opportunities. So you generate an expectation of everyone can reach if they want to. And the reality, it is not necessarily accessible, that uh, American dream, which we all aspire to one way or the other, that is not accessible to everyone, but it does create a huge gap between what you are expecting and the reality. Whereas in other countries, that expectation doesn't exist. And that, I think that that makes it even much harder. Creates stress. That definitely creates stress. We we talked about international threats. You know, fentanyl, methamphetamine, these counterfeit pills that are coming from international sources. But you kind of touched about. I, I see a big domestic threat as well. It's not causing immediate death, but it's 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 um it's causing adverse childhood events and and harming the brains of young children, and that's the domestic legal drugs, and you kind of talked about it, of cannabis, psychedelics, these Delta new products that are openly commercialized, normalized with billboards everywhere. They look like candies and they're directly affecting young people and even babies. Um, and, uh, and we don't have, I don't know any state that has good policies that's really protecting children, our most vulnerable, besides the homeless that are vulnerable, but, but even younger, at children. And we are, you know, you can go to Amazon now and buy these uh, various psychedelics, mushrooms, um, different um, type of drugs that have not been tested, that don't have FDA approval, that, we don't, that don't have any commercial protection. And the first time these drugs are being tested are not lab rats, but on our children. And I think that that's a, a big domestic threat um, in, uh, in screwing up young brains. Well, yeah, and, and, and indeed, we are most concerned about, in general, drugs. I mean, of course, they can kill you, and we're seeing it right now. But there's also the other very negative effects, and, and certainly of particular concern is how they can influence the development of the brain, of the human brain, which is lasts so long. I mean, so during that period, you're particularly vulnerable to modification by pharmacological agents in ways that can be very deleterious. So yes, we are very concerned about it. We're very concerned about the potential negative effects that cannabis consumption, and we're seeing products that contain extremely high levels of THC, can have in, in the brain. But it is, not, as you say, I mean, an, an, an aspect of it, it is not being regulated. And as such, we, what we are seeing is, as I was uh, noting at the beginning of the podcast, is we're seeing that uh, the harmful way of using cannabis overall has gone up. And teenagers are exposed to it and, and children can get exposed to it because they are. these products are so very appealing. I've gone to these dispensaries and I look at them and they come in all sorts of colors. And I also am going to confess that I love candies. And so, and I love candies with colors and gummy bears. And they are appealing to my brain. Imagine a child that doesn't have that understanding. Of course, you are going to so if, if parents are consuming them, they are going to get exposed to them if they are not careful. So, yes, these are issues that are of concern because there's right now no one overseeing regulations at all. And as a result, uh, we are seeing that in our country, people are being exposed to gigantic doses of THC on a given day that uh, reflect in part that lack of oversight and regulation is just sort of, as you say, the wild, wild, wild west. As it comes to these products of cannabis, lots of interest of actually diversifying and competing with this market or the other. So this, this, this requires, I mean, we cannot continue like this because we are already seeing negative consequences. And you've seen it in the emergency department. You are aware of presentations that we didn't see before because of the huge doses. So, yes, indeed, I think that this is an aspect that from the perspective of NIDA, and as I was saying, when we look into the future, the aspects of uh, legislations and policies and impact needs to be researched very carefully. 
Yeah. And thank you so, so much for saying that right right now and, and continue to do that because your voice carries a, a big weight. I mean, this year we tried to uh, pass legislation in California to protect children from, from um, cannabis candies. Um, like we don't need, well, I don't think we need uh, Weedos that look like Cheetos and all these uh, other light candies. And so we, we really just wanted to focus on children, the number one drug of poisoning under the age of five years old. These are not kids with addiction. These are children that are under five years old um, and uh, is marijuana. And, and uh, our local children's hospital in San Diego um, did the study on that, like asking for each overdose what happened to these children? Did they get like spinal taps and CAT scans and interventions? And they said like if parents are honest, then you don't need to have all these interventions. So we learned that. And then we also uh, learned where the kids, what they are. And the number one source of pediatric poisoning is gummy bears. And the number one person that they get it from is their mom. Number two is dad. Um, and we just wanted protection and that did not pass in California. So something as I thought would be not controversial, protecting babies, um, was shot down. So we have to keep trying. So Renette, when ask a question, is this the, the parents giving them to their children or is it that the children? Children take like went into mom's purse and it looks like a candy. And so they put yeah. it in their mouth. Yeah, um, yeah, no, because certainly, I mean, interventions are very different for one on, on the other. But yeah, right. I'm sorry to hear that it didn't pass because in my brain, it's a non-brainer. My God, I am right? to those candies. Okay, so <laughs> if, we, if we try again, and it's now happening at, at schools, right? Children are going to school where you should be safe at school. And then the ambulance comes and takes these children to the hospital. And, and what people think of marijuana, they think, oh, you're just going to giggle. These kids are not giggling. They're encephalopathic. Um, they end up in the ICU. It's not, it's not pretty. Um, no, it's unfortunate. And I think that this is, again, where uh, if we don't speak up, if we don't make this uh, evidence available to others, then it can be hidden under the rock. And whereupon actually what you are doing and documenting this in ways that become accessible and disseminated can ultimately change uh, policymakers. Because as I say, it should be a non-brainer to make edibles non-attractive to children. One of the ways I was thinking that to get that data to you um, is uh, you like for people who are you know looking at statistics and data, you only know what we code as physicians, and we don't do a good job at that. Um, I noticed that with the opioid prescription epidemic, we didn't put that down, and so it seemed like the medical community was behind when there was an alert by CDC and NIDA about too many opioid prescription. Um, but it was actually the medical community catching up and documenting. So right now we're actually not doing a good job of documenting cannabis, methamphetamine. There aren't specific codes for that. So a lot of times we say polydrug use. Um, and so I, I really, I wrote an article and I requested the medical community to just take the extra few seconds and write down cannabis poisoning, methamphetamine poisoning, you know, fentanyl. So so then later when the statistics is done that you know what, what drugs we're seeing because you don't look at the tox screens, you're looking at the coding data. But uh, if you wanted to to say that or make that recommendation, I think it'd go a long way. Um, and then you, you then you would see a lot more uh, and understand more what we're seeing in the emergency departments. Renette, I agree 100, 100% with that statement because otherwise it is dismissed as anecdotal. And right. so the only way that we can solidly make an argument is by having objective measure that is not going to be dismissed. So absolutely. And, and let us know, again, I'm sort of saying it, uh, really uh, hoping that you will take it on and come to us for um, for funding uh, a project that will allow us to do that in a systematic way. Let us know how we can help because that's our job at the end of the day. Yeah, I will. I will. We'll, we'll, we'll follow up. I always have great conversations after we talk about, about this. Um, and uh, so that's important. And uh, again, because we're, we're seeing that. I feel like we're like the canary in the coal mine. We're seeing things in the emergency department and then, then it catches up um, to, to people um, later. 
The other thing that I kind of think about or where my brain goes is um, we're spending a record amount of dollars. And this is always wonderful, okay? We're spending $46 billion on, on the overdose deaths. And yet we're not completing moving the needle like, like I think that we should be. And I am wondering, all the programs that we have are good, you know, prevention, treatment, harm reduction, each one of these things individually, um, you know, you can't find, you know, wrongs with it. It's, these are all good ideas. But I'm wondering if the issue is the balance uh, of it. And, and I look at um, tobacco. How did we get to tobacco down from 42% use to 11.5% use? I don't think it was on the treatment side. I think it was on the front end prevention side. Of course, treatment is important. Um, and I look at opioid prescriptions. How did we reduce that? And again, we didn't buprenorphine our way out of the prescription overdose problems. We did it front end supply. And I'm, I'm wondering if we have now, with all, all the focus, and again, with good, uh, on treatment and harm reduction, we've lost the front end prevention, primary prevention, protecting the brains, um, and that we need more effort on that end as far as the balance of all the different programs. I would say I agree 100% uh, with you, and that's why I very ma explicitly made the point that one of the things that we're looking uh, backwards, we've made a lot of progress, is evidence-based preventions that have shown to be beneficial for protecting people for taking drugs and other mental disorders and positively affected their health outcomes. The evidence is there, but we're not implementing them. So when, when one discusses the notion of the balance, I guess we have to realize, yes, there is a very unbalanced uh, structure in the system that we live in. So we have a healthcare system that allows you to do treatments that of course can be strengthened for substance use disorder and we need to strengthen it but we don't have an equivalent system for the deployment of prevention interventions. And so what we've been doing is trying to figure out, for example, how do we take advantage of healthcare? Because healthcare can be a very active in, engage in prevention, as we know for other conditions. Diabetes is an example. And, but we don't have that as it relates to prevention interventions for substance use disorder per se. They are not going to be reimbursed. You will get reimbursed with, if you actually do an intervention for diabetes, right? And someone that doesn't have it to prevent them to go there, not for us. And so we've, um, one of the things that we've asked um, recently, we asked the National Academy of Sciences, Medicine and Engineering to do a, a report on what is it that it will take uh, for our country to build a structure that is sustainable for deployment of preventions for behavioral health with, with the actionables, what policies should be implemented, what uh, training should be needed, uh, what dissemination efforts. And so they, they are just starting, they are going to have their first in-person meeting in January I passed the committee already two, two, three weeks ago. So we we are, in order to have a systematic perspective, not just from all scientists and academicians, but from people that are out there that may have a notion of what are some of the challenges that they face when they try to implement prevention in healthcare or prevention in schools or in communities. So yes, I agree 100%. We're not going to get out of this one just by buprenorphine it. Buprenorphine will help us a lot and naloxone too. We're keeping people yeah. alive. Yes. But um, the, we're seeing how it's shifting. We, we're continuing the pipeline. We're not stopping the bleed. Correct. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, those programs, I, I mean, I would copy what we do for tobacco, how we did tobacco cessation. And that was very successful. And we already, we have a model of how we were able to do that. And I've seen some communities also take that, not just to healthcare, because, you, you know, you have a few minutes with a doctor's appointment, but to schools. I mean, there's some evidence-based life skills at, at schools that by teaching life skills and how to deal with um, anxiety and, and, and other issues, you know, life is hard. It starts hard even when you're young. If you learn how to deal with those, um, you know, emotions without resulting taking drugs to help those emotions, 
then you've gone upstream and you know can help a generation. Yes, and the data has shown that those personalized interventions for children that may have certain challenges with anxiety or self-regulation or social uh, lack of fluidness, so they feel isolated and lonely, all of those have shown to be beneficial, but, but we don't value them enough to pay for them. So that's why I actually say speaking highlight is not that the research has not shown it or that they're not evidence-based interventions to see how you target them. They are, and they are effective. They are not paid for. They are not sustainable. There's not, there hasn't been that embracing of the importance of prevention overall. So I, that is, uh, that's one of the aims that we, we went, why we went with the National Academy. And we're doing this in partnership with other institutes. So very much embraced by, by, for example, the National Cancer Institute, the National Institutes of Mental Health, the alcohol abuse and alcoholism. So there is a recognition and an understanding that we have to not continue to basically avoid it. I think I was sort of uh, presented recently, and I do not, uh, and I don't want to say that this is very specifically accurate. But when you speak about the balance, um, I mean, if we look at the programs that exist uh, that pay for people with a substance use disorder versus those that pay for prevention, there's much more money going into the treatment side than on the prevention. So in research also, we have um, much more money going into therapeutic study in prevention. So there is an unbalance and uh, how to optimally target so it's successful. Because I, what is very frustrating is you, you fund this research and it's wonderful and it shows positives and everything, and then no one uses it. So it's so so from the inception, what we're shifting our uh, strategies is bringing in the payers. Uh, which includes CMS, and say, well, if we were, what would you be willing to pay for? What are the outcomes that, just like the FDA required these outcomes, what are the outcomes that will lead you to reimburse, say, for example? Again, you know, tobacco is an example. We were paid $5 to, to do tobacco cessation education, you know, for three minutes with patients. Everybody was doing it for $5. (laughs) <laughs> of reimbursement. It doesn't take much to create an incentive like that. I could see that we do that. And it would make me laugh like, okay, let me talk to you about your tobacco use so we can get $5, but go ahead with the methamphetamine, you know, <laughs> because I don't get $5 for that. Um, yeah, but that was mounted in a campaign that was part of a more comprehensive intervention. I mean, what brought the tobacco down was not just yeah. the intervention of the physicians, which was valuable. No, no. Yeah, no, the truth uh, campaign. It was protecting the brains, right? It's p- preventing a new generation of use. And putting taxes into those cigarettes. Yes. There was a yes. massive Deterrence, campaign. deterrence, right. But that's what we need. I mean, yes. we, it's not going to be one single measure that makes the difference. But absolutely, and I always use the success of the prevention campaign for smoking as something that we should be emulating. Let's, let's sort of we've been able to do it in our country very, very fast and very efficiently uh, at all age for all the ages, including young people. In young people, it was actually perhaps the most successful. So yes, let's learn lessons from the past. I tell you, I don't like to reinvent the wheel. I like to learn from innovative yes. things that work and learn from those that did it and so that we can avoid the same mistakes. That's great. What are some of the, you know, NIDA does amazing research. I know I'm very excited about one specific uh, drug that you found it, you funded for methamphetamine, a sequestrant that would like take it out of the uh, bloodstream with, and deactivate it within a short time. I don't know how many years it'll be before we have that, but that's one thing that I know you're funding that I'm very excited about. What are some of the other, you have so many projects, but what are some of the highlights of ones that you're excited about? Well, I'm excited at multiple levels because they are, I'm excited at those that may go into the clinic faster for the obvious reason. And that is um, research on repurposed medications. But I'm also very excited about completely novel interventions. And I think that the use of sequestrants for actually capturing and um, removing drugs from the blood is a very valuable. And as is also, we're working 
already in clinical trials for monoclonal antibodies that bind with very high affinity to methamphetamine or to fentanyl. And so that then the drug cannot get into the brain. So this, this in a way, use different methodologies, but their goal is the same. Sequester, avoid getting into the brain. But um, I'm also very excited because of the timeline for, again, repurpose medications. And for example, there are two of them that we are right now funding research on. One of them is Suborexan. And Suborexan, which is uh, norexin receptor one and, and two antagonists that has been approved by the FDA for insomnia has been shown in animal models to prevent relapse, drug taking, and in a clinical study that we are funding significantly improved sleep, which is very deranged in people that take opioids, whether it's medications or non-medications, but it decreased craving and withdrawal. So that study, I'm excited because if it does show benefit, that then the FDA can approve it for a new indication. Another one that we're all very excited in the field is the glucagon like peptide one receptor agonist, like suborexant, um, no, semaglutide, what am I saying, speaking of suborexant, semaglutide, that actually have shown in animal models to also interfere with the rewarding effects of various drugs, whether it's nicotine, whether it's cocaine, whether it's heroin, whether it's alcohol. And in, in anecdotal reports, we have seen that patients actually describe that their urges to drink or smoke are going down. And um, so it is uh, an opportunity. So now we are funding research on this uh, to, to evaluate its efficacy for the treatment of, of opioid use disorder, for tobacco, and for the Alcohol Institute is funding research for alcohol use disorder. So those are things that are very exciting because if positive, we could have alternative treatments I'm extremely excited about uh, the potential of neuromodulation because as we have learned to understand much better the brain and with databases that now allow us to coalesce multiple uh, data from multiple um, thousands of people, we can start to generate signatures that can help us identify, for example, which areas of the brain predict uh, um, recovery, actually interruption of drug taking and, and with neuromodulation tools where we now are again learning how to tailor, how to stimulate or inhibit specific networks or regions, we can then start to see how we can apply them for treatment. So I think that this is going to be, we're going to see a lot of advances for neuromodulation in the next five years. Some of them are invasive, some of them even uh, perhaps with a faster trajectory, non-invasive because they are less costly and it's incredibly, incredibly exciting. And actually one can even foresee, I mean, where we can go to try to maximize um, actually the, the, the function of the human brain in ways that protected from vulnerabilities like impulsivity, say, for example, or so, 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 so obviously, I don't. I, I think we have to be very aware of ethical uh, implications of this, and that we need to understand what downstream effects may be that are not obvious to us right now. But certainly, from therapeutics, neuromodulation looks incredibly exciting. I'm also uh, very intrigued, and I think that we should be. That's what science is all about about our better understanding about how some of the psychedelic work, uh, drugs work. And uh, what intrigues me and fascinates me about these, some of these psychedelic drugs, the classical ones, LSD, psilocybin, that they can enhance and accelerate the molecular mechanisms um, that uh, are associated with neuroplasticity, that are associated with strengthening synapses or weakening them. And so those, those mechanisms are very important because that's how drugs take hold. They basically strengthen certain circuits and weaken others. So and in a psycho psychotherapeutic intervention, what you're aiming to do is to create new cognitive ways of looking at problems and uh, basically degrading memories that drive you to these uh, automatic behaviors. And if we can use these... Um, uh, psychedelic drugs to manipulate that psychotherapeutic intervention to have longer lasting effects, um, it could be quite transformative. So I think that that's why from the research perspective, 
it offers a completely new window as looking at how therapeutics could look like. These are just some of the examples. There are many examples. I'm very excited. But, but whenever I hear you say that, I always want to add the caveat for anybody who's listening, because I know you agree with me that when you talk about these things, you mean FDA approved use and not for Absolutely. you buying from the streets and pretending that you're your own doctor. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm glad that you are bringing this up because we yeah. can never under underemphasizing. I mean, it's very different to get these under a very well controlled conditions for um, after an evaluation that has determined that you are likely to benefit as opposed to someone that may have very negative outcomes when they are not properly done. And this, for example, has been noted with the use of psilocybin for the treatment of depression. Uh, where they have shown that in some individuals it can generate suicidal thinking. Now, because these trials were done under very careful conditions, you can actually minimize those risks. But what's worrisome, and I was commenting on that specifically, I was thinking about it when you were asking what are issues and challenges into the future, is that you can see how the potential of uh, therapeutics can be taken out of context and applied in premature ways with no oversight, having very negative consequences. So absolutely, this very specifically pertains on the potential that these drugs may have into the future uh, for certain conditions. And the, the reason why we do our research and whereupon why we have agencies like the FDA that regulate what they deem is sufficient benefit to risk and under what conditions to approve them or not. So yes, uh, it is important to have a very strong cautionary note to this effect. Yes. Yeah. Because that, yeah, I say people take that out of context. I've even seen like, you know, on Twitter or whatever, like NIDA approves Kratom or NIDA approves psychedelics. So, you know, why are you making this illegal? And they, they take that out of context. And I, because I, I know you don't mean <laughs> for people to be able to, to buy these drugs on Amazon and, and treat themselves. Yes, um, indeed, absolutely. And Rui, I'm singing my screen. Next meeting, next meeting, they're waiting for you. So I realize <laughs> that if I look at my time, oh my God, the time has gone very, very fast. Okay. So, all right, let's, let's confuse because I love talking to you. We could end. What are your, your, um, you know, hopes for, for the future for, for 2024? Oh, I'm very excited about 2024. I think, uh, it's, it's very refreshing and invigorating to see a recognition that we need to start to pay more attention to social determinants of health and the structural elements that have made so many people vulnerable for substance use and adverse outcomes. I do believe that there is a moment right now where we're seeing the recognition that the health disparities are non-acceptable and that we will also, the, the embracing that as we move science, it is crucial that scientific advances are made available for everyone and that they are not going to be discriminatory practices because scientific advances are being made and it's very, very exciting and sort of we are looking at the data revolution, the analytical models. I mean, it, it's extraordinary where we're going to, and, but we have to be mindful that we don't want to use it to further create disparities. So, I'm excited at the moment, and obviously I'm always excited of challenges uh, because we can make things happen. Thank you so much, Dr. Nora Woka, for your time today, for your service to our country, for many years of service, for your innovation and positive outlook, for teaching me. And I think I told you the story several years ago. I saw you, I think it was on the second or third National Rx uh, Summit. And my, my daughters were at a Justin Bieber concert and they sent me a picture. And then I sent them a picture of you. I said, this is the real rock star. <laughs> and so you're still my rock star. And, well, uh, you're very kind. I, I, don't <laughs> I gave you some homework, okay? I do okay. think that because I do. You are in the right track and we need to engage people that are influential in their environments to change practices in healthcare. So thanks a lot for everything you do. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where you learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, 
doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org. That's I-A-S-I-C-1.org. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more. High Truths. <laughs>